good morning, Life Church, and good morning to all of you who are joining us online this morning. Hope you're having a great Sunday. Maybe we can make it just a little bit better. All right, I want to start off today with a question, and here it is. Are you familiar with a thing called the fundamental attribution error? Okay. If you are familiar, just raise your hand. I can see you out there. Virtually no one. Excellent. That makes me look really smart. All right. The fundamental attribution error is this bias that we've all been sucked into, especially during a political season. It goes like this. This cognitive bias causes us to attribute people's behavior to their character. In other words, the reason he acts that way is because that's who he really is. The reason she behaves that way is because that's how she really is on the inside. But you know what? We don't do that when it comes to our own behavior. When it comes to us, we attribute our behavior to circumstances and environmental factors. For example, we see this guy at work and he's late. You know why he's late? Because he's lazy and irresponsible. He's just disorganized. That's why he's late. But then you're late and suddenly your reasoning is all different. No, no, it's not because you're lazy and irresponsible. No, just the opposite for you. Well, the reason I'm late is because I'm helping my kids get ready for school on time. Or I was on a really, really important call. I'm actually very responsible. In fact, I'm so responsible, that's why I'm late, right? <laughs> that's how it works. This fundamental attribution bias happens when we assume that a person's character is automatically called into question because of their behavior. Just automatically, it's always their character, never any outside factors at all. Now, when it comes to the political scene, it kind of works like this. This is what it sounds like. Those corrupt Democrats, they're all just corrupt. You know why they act that way? Because they're corrupt. They all are. That's just their character or those heartless Republicans. You know why they vote that way? You know why they believe that way? Because they're heartless. I've met all of them. I know every Republican and they're heartless. Well, we've all been sucked into this cognitive bias to some degree. Democrats, all socialist. Republicans, they're all racist. Friends, political rhetoric grabs us by the nose and leads us into believing all kinds of silly things that just aren't true. And you're better than that. So let's not do that anymore. In fact, you can start calling people out when they start doing it. You know, you can say, you know, you're just suffering from a cognitive bias. And they'll look at you like, what? Yeah, you're just suffering from a cognitive bias. Now, I'm emotionally intelligent, so I don't suffer from that. Uh, I used to, but and then I heard this incredible sermon that showed me exactly what you're doing. And you're welcome, by the way. <laughs> well, last week we talked about the law of Christ, also known as the law of love. And it's based on this new command that Jesus gave to his disciples at the Last Supper when they were all together. He said, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. That's his new covenant command. In other words, we're not to carry the 613 Old Testament commands, you know, uh, the way that we're supposed to live. We're supposed to carry this one big new covenant, New Testament command. Love one another as I have loved you. And then a little later on, we read from Galatians chapter 6, where Paul describes it like this. He says, carry one another's burdens. Because when we choose to carry one, another, one another's burdens, you know what we're doing? We listen, we learn, and we love. When we choose to carry someone's burden, well then what divides us diminishes, and what unites us surfaces. We fear less, we understand more, and this, friends, is actually how the church began. Now, some of you watching today grew up in churches where you talked about politics all the time. But if you did, isn't it true that you only talked about it from one side of the argument? And so churches get known for being super left or super right or 
kind of Republican or kind of leaning Democrat, and hopefully we've avoided that. We said that the issues that Christians really need to wrestle to the ground is not really what party to be a part of, but it's this. Can we put our faith ahead of our politics? Can we do that? It's very difficult to do. In fact, it is so difficult to do that most American Christians think that they have already done it. Now, if you're a Jesus follower, you've got to be a Christ follower first and a Republican or Democrat or Independent or Libertarian, whatever, second. We do the world a huge disfavor when we wrap our political leanings with the teaching of Jesus. And lots of people try to do this. So if you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this. Jesus did not come to support an existing structure. He didn't come to take sides. He came to take what? Over. Jesus came to replace what was in place. Jesus is the king who came to reverse the order of things. And when we edit and when we filter Jesus in order to fit a party platform, we rob not just our communities and our nation, we actually rob the world of the message that changed the world. We must first, first be kingdom people. Now, is this a big deal? This is a really big deal. Early Christians gave their lives for this. They refused unconditional loyalty to the emperors, even the good ones. And in doing so, they actually moved the moral needle for the empire. And you know how they did it? They did it through cultural disruptive unity. In a world that was organized around citizenship and wealth and power, where people purchased their way up the social ladder, they purchased their way to social standing. But the ecclesia of Jesus, the gathering of Jesus, which would later come to be known as the church, stood in direct opposition to all of that. It was disturbing, it was unsettling, and it was assumed to be dangerous to the empire. And that's why the empire decided to strike back. Just kidding. This is why the Roman Empire decided to impose sanctions upon Christians. And they forced Christians to declare that Caesar was Lord and they wanted them to sacrifice to the emperors. They suspected that their behavior was a threat to the empire. Now there's really no way to elicit in us the emotion that those first and, century, uh, first and second century Christians felt. But these are classes of people who rarely ever overlapped, now coming together voluntarily and regularly to worship the crucified God. It was baffling to the onlookers from the outside. People overcame their social norms and prejudices. They overcame their racism and their class separation. Now, why would they do this? Why would they come together to worship a crucified Lord? Because the message of Jesus was so clear. He's saying, I'm coming to establish a new kind of kingdom and everyone is invited to participate in it. Now, we can't really imagine how countercultural, how disturbing the Apostle Paul's words were when he said things like this. There, in Christ, there is no Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave or free, and so on. We read those words, we're like, yeah, duh, whatever. But we forget how transformational this was, how countercultural it was. There's a new kingdom in town, and all classes and separation have no part in that kingdom. Why? Because all have sinned and separated themselves from God. All have fallen short, and all find salvation in the same way. And what used to divide you now is the potential to, to unite you. It was disruptive to everything that they knew, this brand new upside-down kingdom. And people respond to it by saying, wait, wait, you're telling me that God views 
me with the same dignity and esteem that he views my master? Or that, wait, wait, you're telling me that God sees slaves the same way that he sees me? Everybody's equal? I've never heard those words before. So when we all come together in this new group, we're equal? What kind of kingdom is that? It's hard for us to get this because slavery in the ancient world was not like slavery in the, in the United States. Slavery in the U.S. was driven by racism, by color of skin. In the ancient world, just about everybody was a potential slave to somebody else. You miss your house payment, they come for your house and your daughter. You miss your horse payment, they come for your horse and your son. Debt had the potential of putting you into slavery. So just about everybody is a potential slave to somebody else. And in a culture like this, the dignity of women drops off the table to a degree that's hard to even imagine. Women would have no standing in a culture like this that was driven by men and by classes and with the potential of any person being seen as property. But in God's kingdom, it's different. In God's kingdom, this person is the daughter of God. What Jesus did for the status of women was revolutionary. I mean, it's common sense to us. It was not common sense in the ancient world. So this new kingdom, this is not a tweak. This is not a little adjustment of the dial. No, no. This is wholesale change. This is a new paradigm. This is the upside down kingdom of God. And Jesus has introduced it to the world and everyone is invited to participate in it. This is why it would be so foolish for the church to be divided over political issues or political parties, because those parties will one day be no more and Jesus will still be king. All right, stay with me. About 45 years after both the Apostle Peter and Apostle Paul are uh, martyred, they're executed in Nero's Rome, the church finds itself at a crossroad. The two biggest leaders of the, of the early church are gone. Does that mean that Rome won? No, it does not at all. Christianity just continued to spread like crazy. So 45 years after those, those leaders are gone, Pliny the Younger is a governor in that area of the world. And he realizes it's his responsibility to put down the spread of Christianity. Why is that? Because the emperor had sent out an edict to stop the spread of the church of Christianity because he felt that the Roman gods were now angry. Rome was beginning to fray at the edges and they were looking for someone to blame it on. The gods must be angry because they're not being sacrificed to as much as they used to be. So who's the culprit? It's gotta be those Christians who don't bow down to any of the Roman gods. Their message says that the Roman gods are not gods at all and that their God is the God of all. So there's an edict that goes out that you're to round up and arrest Christians. You're to force them to swear ultimate allegiance to the emperor and then sacrifice to the emperor as to a god. So Pliny the Younger questions this edict. He's saying, I'm not even sure why we're doing this. I haven't noticed a disturbance in our community because of these Christians. So he writes a letter to the emperor Trajan asking this question. What should I do with these Christians once I round them up? But before he sent that letter to the emperor, he did a little investigating on his own because he wanted to educate himself on what made these Christians so dangerous. So he incorporated his findings in a letter, a letter that actually survived antiquity. And here's what Pliny the Younger discovered about the Christian community 45 years after Paul and Peter were executed by Rome. Here's his words. The sum and substance of their fault, meaning the Christians, the sum and substance of their fault had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day of the week before dawn. He's, he's saying, in other words, 
I actually arrested a few Christians, kind of roughed them up a little bit to find out what's going on. And one thing I discovered is they, they meet together early on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But Sunday is a work day, so they meet before dawn, before work, to celebrate and to worship together. Now, just a quick aside here. Suppose we moved our uh, Life Church worship services to Monday morning at 5.30 a.m. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? <laughs> he goes on, he says, when they gather early in the morning, he says, they sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God. So, oh my gosh, how is the empire gonna survive people singing? This is such a threat to the empire. So 2,000 years ago, the people that took Christianity from one generation to the next generation after Peter and Paul, they would gather and they would sing. And one of the reasons that they would sing is because lots of them couldn't read. And the Bible's not all put together yet. I mean, they, they might have an early draft of a gospel or maybe one of Peter or Paul's letters. But in many of these communities, lots of early believers learned their theology through songs and through community prayers. So they would sing. This was one of their ways of worshiping. Here's the other thing that they found out from this letter from Pliny. It says, when the believers were all together, it says, they would bind themselves by oath. Okay, here we go. I'm sure this oath has something to do with undermining the empire, maybe assassinating one of the Caesars, or maybe writing Christian graffiti on the Colosseum walls. We'll see. What were they taking an oath for? Here's the essence of their vow. Here's what it says. Not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. Whoa, that sounds dangerous. Can't have people like that in our towns. <laughs> I think when Pliny the Younger discovers all this, he realizes, well, no wonder I haven't heard of all this before. These are some of the finest people in the community and I'm supposed to arrest them? Well, let me remind you what's kind of amazing about this. In the pagan religions, there was really no morality or ethics related to idol worship. I mean, there was some civil law to keep people in line, but when it came to the gods, the gods apparently didn't care how you treated other people or your wife or your kids or whoever, didn't matter. Perception was they just wanted their blood sacrifice and their grain offerings. But now suddenly here comes this group of Jesus followers and they feel that somehow in their worship, there is a moral component. They feel accountable to God for how they live. They feel accountable to God for how they treat people in the community. And Pliny the Younger finds this out and says, that's it? That's what they're all about? And why is it that we're mad at these people? We think they're undermining the empire? I mean, it made no sense. This is so countercultural in a culture that worshiped strength, in a culture that worshiped conquest and victory. You know, the ruling class, honestly, found Christianity, the way of Jesus, they found it to be kind of pathetic and pitiful. They're worshiping a crucified rabbi. And from their perspective, this whole thing was just weird and appalling to them. But growing numbers of people, for growing numbers of people, this new upside down kingdom of Jesus was life. It was appealing to them. It was a new way to live entirely. Christians refused to abandon the sick because they no longer feared death. Christians would rescue abandoned babies because everyone is made in the image of God. So Christians would go out to the edge of the forest or the edge of the river or outside their village and they would rescue these babies that were often left by Romans who didn't want the inconvenience of another child. And the Christians would bring these babies, these children in and raise them as their own. Who are these people? I mean, they extended dignity to others that were not in their class, people who 
they would say, no, those people are below your class. So who are these people? Author Jordan Peterson sums it up perfectly when he said this, Christianity achieved the impossible. The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul, placing slave and master and commoner and nobleman alike on the same metaphysical footing, rendering them equal before God and the law. The transcendent worth of each and every individual soul. The kingdom of God, as described by Jesus, struck the ancients as appalling, and then eventually appealing, and in time it became contagious and it swept through the entire empire. Against all odds, a small group following a crucified rabbi, who this person who had no land, no military, no political power, and their message was built around these two wacky ideas, love God and love people. Love God, love one another, including your enemy. Love God, love one another. Sounds like our big idea at Life Church, doesn't it? Keep company with God and learn a life of love. So Christianity not only survived, but it thrived and it shaped Western civilization. And we, every single Jesus follower that's watching or listening to this, we are a part of that movement, that ancient movement. And this is why we, the followers of the eternal king, dare not be divided by lesser kings. Now, you're passionate about some stuff. I get that. And I, I've gotten some pushback about all of this, I know. You might not be able to understand how a Jesus follower could possibly have a different view on a specific issue than you have. I mean, you call yourself a Christian and you're still against that? You call yourself a Christian and you're still for that? You call yourself a Christian and you can't see this? You may never ever understand why other Christians don't see political or social issues the same exact way that you do. You may never understand why they may be for what you're against or against what you're for. So when you go to vote, and I believe we all should, when you go to vote, you vote your law of Christ informed conscience. Absolutely. When you go to vote, you don't vote on trying to make a bunch of people happy. You vote your conscience. And do your homework as a citizen and as a Christian. Compare the actual stances on issues. Don't vote based on assumptions or sound bites or personalities or peer pressure. My goodness, be smarter than that. But in the meantime, let's do what the early church did. Let's listen and learn and love. Let's carry each other's burdens. Because when we do, we gain understanding about each other, like where you stand because of where you sit. And when we carry each other's burdens, something happens in us that does not happen in any other way. Because we might not agree politically, but we can love unconditionally and we'll gain a better understanding of each other. And in so doing, we fulfill the law of Christ, the law of love. Let me just say this in a different way. You don't have to agree with me to love me. I don't have to agree with you in order to love you. We can disagree politically, yet love unconditionally, while we pray and work for unity. Now, why don't we take this to the Lord and pray, can we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this call not to have unanimity, not that we have to agree on every single thing, but we can have unity and we can love unconditionally by your power at work within us. So God, would you help us to do that? In this time of so much hostility one towards another, would you help us to be bringers of peace? 
Would you help us be people that love unconditionally, even where we disagree politically? And God, would you help us to keep on praying for unity? We believe you can do this, Lord, and we know that you will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, I got some good news for you. You probably know this already. We posted it and shared it last week, but Life Church is coming back to in-person physical services on Sunday mornings on December 6th at 10 a.m. at the East End Market. Make your plans to be there. Now, uh, between now and then, we actually have a, a, a gathering coming up this Wednesday night, 7 p.m. at the home of Noah and Tracy Telesnik. We've had meetings there before where we're gonna get together and we're gonna have some live worship together and some food and fellowship and we'll pray together uh, for about an hour, hour and 15 minutes or so. And I hope you can make your plans to be there this Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Okay, we'll post the, uh, all the information on our website. It'll be on Facebook as well. And uh, we hope to see you there, all right? Between now and then, let me leave you with this. Go in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, the God who came still comes and the God who spoke still speaks. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. See you on Wednesday. Thank you.